All right. Uh, it wouldn't be fitting and proper at our church with the pastor that we have if we didn't give you a little Chinese lesson on Chinese New Year's. So this Tuesday starts the Year of the Tiger, which uh, Belinda and I were both born in the Year of the Tiger. So it's kind of our, our year. And, and Mama too. Okay. So, so three of us at least that were born in this year. Uh, but uh, you'll notice that underneath the characters are written some what's called Romanization, so that X-I-N, X is pronounced like an S-H, and you notice the I has kind of a flat line over it. That means it's said with a level tone, so it's sheen, and then uh, the next word is nin, and you notice it's got a mark that starts and goes up. So that's to help you know your voice goes nin, up like that. And then uh, the last two, you notice the mark comes down and to the right, and it's kwai la. So xin yin, kwai la. So, okay, let's all try that one time. Xin yin, kwai la. So, happy New Year to you uh, again. So, we get two New Years at our church, and that's a good thing. Uh, but I, I so appreciate the, uh, the ministry of the, the seminary and, and what it means to me. And, uh, you know, I was glad I got to go to a school where I could still believe the Bible when it was over. Um, uh, is a, just again a trend that is the more education most people get, the more liberal they tend to become, either politically or um, you know theologically certainly. And uh, and I'm grateful for Dr. Woodworth who didn't go that direction and still is a great uh, Bible teacher for us. And uh, by the way, I really <laughs> I enjoy the songs he picks. I had the privilege we sang number 50 a while ago, "Be Thou Exalted." I learned that song. Uh, from the man who wrote the music, Alfred P. Smith. And uh, uh, every time I had a chance to worship with uh, Mr. Smith, it was, uh, that was always the song that he led. He always led that song. Uh, the song's written by Fanny Crosby, by the way. She wrote over 3,000 hymns, and I think Mr. Smith's probably one of the only people who's seen most of those 3,000. And if I could ever find a book that had all of her hymns in it, I'd be thrilled. So if anybody wants to get me a Christmas gift sometime, that... That would be a good one to, to get. Well, we're going to go back to James chapter 4. So if you turn to James chapter 4, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 13 through 17. And uh, I guess uh, this will be a little different compared to all the sermons that have preceded it in that usually we get into one or two verses and I can find an hour's worth of content. But there's really just two kind of main points here uh, that we want to make, and I'll take a little time to illustrate them. Uh, and then I do want to give you a couple of people that I think illustrate these principles well uh, from history. Uh, and I'm not a historian like Dr. Woodworth is, but I, I tend to, uh, uh, I'm more interested in history now that I'm part of it. Uh, so, uh, but let's just kind of re remember that James chapter 4 starts talking about conflict. Where does it come from? And really, all conflict originates with some form of pride. And so James has already talked to us, first of all, about that we need to turn hatred into humility. And that he says all the wars and fightings that are among us come even out of our own lust, that war in our members. And we talked about the significance of them warring in our members and what Paul said about how things war in our members. And yet Paul said with his members he served the law of sin, but with his mind he served the law of Christ. And what the difference was between where your, your brain, which is a part of your members, are, and where your mind is, which is a part of your soul. And that there's a difference. And Paul makes that distinction, particularly in Romans 7. So we talked about that. And then we talked about how we create highways of bad behavior through our brain. And we have these, these uh, uh, neural pathways that we just get uh, developed either with good habits or bad habits. And, and that's why it's so difficult for people to overcome certain addictions. And yet we always have a choice in our soul. So we talked about how we need to turn these prejudices and things that uh, people had that were causing conflicts among James' congregation and how we need to turn it into an attitude of humility. And then last week we talked about turning judgment into justice. He says if we judge others, we become a judge of the law. And that's kind of ludicrous because there's only one lawgiver, and that's God. He's the lawgiver. He is the, the enforcer of the law. He's the judge of the law. Uh, so we really don't have any part in that. So who, and this, this is how James ended last week's passage, who are we to judge others? What makes us think we're qualified? It's really an act of pride when we judge others because we're putting ourselves in the realm of God to pass judgment on others. 
Now in this passage today, in verses 13 through 17, he's going to say we need to turn our boasting into belief. Uh, There's a difference between arrogant self-confidence and faith in Jesus Christ. And so let's look at James chapter 4. If you do stand in honor of God's Word if you're able to do so. James chapter 4, and this is from the Lexham English Bible. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we'll travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and carry on business and make a profit. You who do not know what will happen tomorrow, what your life will be like. For you are a smoky vapor that appears for a short time and then disappears. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let's pray. Father, would you now just open the simple truths of this passage to our understanding. And as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper in a few moments, would you bring to our minds those areas where we know to do good and we've not done it. Father, help us to confess those sins to you so we can partake of it in a more worthy manner. Lord, we love you. Uh, We pray for those who aren't able to be here because of sickness and for those who are traveling, and we just ask your grace upon them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you. You may be seated. So I need to give you a little bit of a historical background. The Jews were kind of... um, unique in the ancient world in that they had skills as merchants and traders pretty much unlike anything else. And, and unfortunately, some of that's actually come down into our language today in a somewhat derogatory fashion that when you're bargaining for an item, you're haggling uh, for an item. Uh, you, there's a phrase we used to use in English, and I, I hope we don't use it as much anymore, but the saying when you're trying to get the price down is, I'm trying to Jew them down. Well, that, that phrase kind of came from an honest reason because they were the, the most skilled merchants of the ancient, ancient world. And there was a, this was an age where there was founding in many cities and very often uh, when the Romans would found a city, they would offer opportunities of citizenship to Jews in a new city because where there were Jewish merchants and traders, there were commerce and there was an economy and there was a robustness that, that came so that their, the government could tax citizens there because there was an economy going on there. And so uh, the Jews had some advantages. And yes, they were persecuted just about everywhere they went, but they were at the same time venerated for their ability to, to do business. And so, there, you know, James is primarily talking to this Jewish audience and these Jewish Christians. Uh, but there's, there's a problem is that some people in business get a little cocky. They get a little um, uh, too full of themselves, as it were, when they make their plans, and they maybe don't consult the Lord. And even today, you remember what Jesus said about it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for rich men to enter the kingdom of God. And and I don't really believe that's a reference to uh, a gate that a camel has to get on its knees and go through. People try to say that, and yet... Uh, there's no historical evidence that that's the, the concept there. Uh, you know, you can get a camel through the eye of a sewing needle, but you have to put them through a blender first, you know. And God has to get many of us very humble before uh, we can get to a place where we'll receive Christ. And, uh, and it's because rich people and, and smart people have a disadvantage in that they tend to trust in their own resources. There are people who have so much intellect that they can't allow their intellect to bow down before the Almighty because they think that they can run their own lives. And then people who are rich and very wealthy. Uh, I was uh, talking yesterday, yesterday, I had to go up to a funeral home in Denton because my brother-in-law had died. He had had two heart attacks in the last year and he'd had uh, uh, his kidneys had stopped functioning. And then when they got to the hospital, they... Uh, diagnosed him with COVID, so the hospital would not let my sister Sherry into the room while her husband was dying. And so basically, he dies alone. And of course, she says, he can't die alone. And the hospital staff responded, oh, there's plenty of us around. Well, that's not the same as having your, your, your wife there. And they were married for 32 years. And so yesterday, we went to the funeral home up in Denton and had a family visitation. And I saw a, my, my nephew there who is a, a multi-millionaire. He 
years ago invented a herbal supplement to help cure people of hangovers, and he made literally millions of dollars off of that, and he's a prominent businessman. And yet I don't know that he, um, he certainly respectfully is a great guy to talk to. I just don't know that he, he knows who the Lord is. Uh, and he has such an extravagant life, certainly compared to mine, that I don't, I don't know if he would ever see the need of a Savior. And that's, that's our problem. We've got to see the need. Well, a lot of times businessmen who thrive in their businesses don't see their need of anything. Uh, and so James starts, verse 13, he says, Come now you who say, basically that's just a little archaic form of saying, Now listen. Pay attention to what I'm about to tell you uh, because I want to tell you something important. And then James cites the example of an offender uh, in his mind, someone who's damaging the cause of Christ because while he may claim to be a businessman, he is making his plans without reference to God. And that sounds horrible, doesn't it? And yet how many of us get up in the mornings and we start out on our daily routines or we start out dealing with the problems of life and we make our plans without reference to God, without spending time with the Lord, without consulting Him. Uh, probably other than the, uh, maybe other than the Bible and uh, Wilmington Study Guide to the Bible and uh, maybe one or two other books. Probably the, the greatest book I ever read was one of my best friends gave me a little thin paperback. And it was called Discovering the Secret Closet of Prayer. It was written by a former Air Force uh, officer, and he commented that in the Air Force it would have been inexcusable to skip the morning flight briefing because you wouldn't have known where the enemy was located. You wouldn't have known what the mission of your flight was. You wouldn't have known the meteorological conditions that you would encounter on the way, and you would have absolutely no idea when you would encounter flak. And it would have been stupid for him as a pilot to climb into a plane and take off down the runway not knowing any of those things. And he said, yet how often do we not go to the secret closet of prayer and, and discover from the only one who knows what is out in front of us what we need to do that day? So this is really a more common problem than just uh, a few rich businessmen who make plans. The reality is, at times, we all make plans without consulting the Lord. In uh, 1976, as I remember, there was a great deal of fog on the Canary Islands. And uh, there was an airport there, and there was a 747 sitting at each end of the runway. And uh, one of the pilots had been waiting for permission to take off, had not gotten it for a while, and he finally decided, oh, I'm in the Canary Islands on my own. I'm just going to take off. And so he hits the thrusters, and the 747 goes down the runway, and then before it could lift off the ground, plowed into the other 700, 747 that was there, and some 260 people died that day, all because they failed to talk to the control tower. And uh, I, am, I am grateful. One of the reasons God gave me a wife is she keeps me from doing stupid things. And uh, she has uh, some, maybe sometimes maybe better in touch with the control tower. I don't know. But I've learned that she's my radar that keeps me from flying into mountains. And in the same way, prayer keeps us from crashing into something before we even left off the ground. We've got to spend that time. So James talks about a typical businessman who makes plans apart from God. He's self-assertive in business and travel plans, and he describes this guy, and the picture's kind of like he's looking at a map, like some of the maps that Stephen had in his slide presentation this morning. And he points at a certain uh, spot on the map and says, here's a new city. Uh, there's great opportunities to go there. I'm going to go there. Maybe they're going to offer me citizenship if I go, and I will go and start a business. I'll live there for several years, and I'll make great riches. And he makes all those plans, and yet you keep hearing this word, I. I'll go there. I'll start uh, at the bottom. I'll trade for yourself. I'll make my fortune. I'll come back rich. And it, there's no reference to God. And, and if you look at what he's saying and break it down, he says, we, he says, I will go to this particular city. So this is a person who's self-assertive in his travel plans. He's already made his travel plans. He already knows where he's going. He, he's already set his direction. But he hasn't actually asked God if that's what he should do. 
All you have to do, by the way, is think back to the Old Testament for just a moment that after the great battle at Jericho when the walls fell down, the, the Jewish people next come up against a little old puny town called Ai. And there's absolutely no reason that, that uh, some two to three million Jews can't take a little town of a few thousand people. And yet they go to battle against Ai and the men of Ai chase the Jews out, killed many of them, and, and the Jews run back with their tails tucked beneath, between their legs. And why did that happen? Because they went into battle without asking God for the battle plan. They didn't even pray. They didn't think they needed to because they obviously overwhelmed the enemy. But we don't ever obviously overwhelm anything unless God's on our side. And that was the problem they had. And so th th this idea of, I'm going to go there. Don't go there without talking to the Lord. And then he says, we'll stay there for a year. In other words, they have their own time schedule. It's like, I'm going to do this for this long and that's my plans. But we need to be willing to let God change our plans. We don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know how long we're going to be there. And, and then I'll carry on this business. And by the way, this is a, a Greek word from which we get the English word emporium. It's a place where you buy and sell. You buy at a low price, you sell at a higher price, you take the gain uh, between them, you create a market for trade, and that is essentially what he's doing here. He says, I'm going to carry on uh, this business of buying, selling, and trade. So he, he's self-directing in his career too. Um, I, I can't tell you how many twists and turns uh, that I've had in my career over the years. Um, I, uh, I look back at how every job I had along the way, I, I got thrust into something new. I remember years ago when I was working for Fina Oil and Chemical, the guy who controlled their firewall for their network was going to leave, and, and I was just a consultant. He said, well, you need to take this over. I knew nothing about Linux, knew nothing about firewalls, but I learned, and that played into the next job, and the next job, and the next job. And everything I've done in my career has helped me learn skills that I was, for which I was never educated. Uh, but it's because God was directing my direction. You know, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. God takes us in, in directions uh, and, and that's the best kind of career plan is when you just go where God wants you to go and you let him uh, be in control. Well, and he says, and I'll make money. So he, he knows what the focus of his life is. Now I'm going to show you an example in a little bit of a businessman who didn't make business the focus of his life. He made ministry the focus of his life. Uh, and he still has a legacy today, though he's been with the Lord for many years. But I think it's, it's interesting that, you know, it's kind of like, here's my goal. I'm going to make money. It's not that I'm going to serve others. I'm not going to help others. I'm not trying to make others more successful. I'm going to make money. So this is, this is the guy that's on the hustle. Uh, he's, he's got his act together, but he, he's got every plan made with a selfish reference of, of mind. Now, Abraham Lincoln made an interesting statement <laughs> one time at, when he was in a debate in Alton, Illinois, and I, I love studying Lincoln uh, for a lot of reasons. But he says, the Bible says somewhere that we are desperately selfish. I think we could have discovered that fact without the Bible. It doesn't take long to see that people are selfish. Uh, by the way, Abraham Lincoln never identified with a denomination, but uh, he uh, was quite the theologian, as we'll see more of uh, later. The fact of the matter is we're simply not qualified to make our own plans. We don't have the qualifications to do that because we don't see uh, the future. So James' answer is that, hey, don't be confident about the future because you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's not like you don't know what's going to happen six months from now. The reality is you don't know what's going to happen 24 hours from now. The reality is, is that you won't have your next heartbeat unless God allows it. That's how dependent we are. We can't take the next breath without Him. Uh, you know, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1 says. Now, Thomas Akempis in his book, The Imitation of Christ, is where we got the famous phrase that I know you've heard before, man proposes, but God disposes. In other words, we make plans, but the reality is God determines what our outcome is going to be. We're just not qualified. The fact of the matter is life is uncertain. Now, in Proverbs 27, 1, it says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day 
may bring. James quotes a lot from the book of Proverbs, by the way. He was kind of, some people have called James the Proverbs of the New Testament. And the rabbis, by the way, would often quote this verse in Proverbs and then add a little saying of their own. Not that we should ever add to God's word, but this might be one of the more appropriate additions. And they said, perhaps you may not find tomorrow. That's because we don't have any claim on tomorrow. We don't know that it's going to be there. You remember that Jesus told the story of the, the rich but foolish man who made his fortune, and then he says, okay, now I've, I've made my fortune, I've got my barns filled, I'm going to uh, eat, drink, and be merry. And uh, then God tells him, yeah, but uh, you, you're going to die. <laughs> you're going to die tonight. You won't have time to do any of that. Uh, so this man had built great fortunes and yet never had time to enjoy them because he didn't know what tomorrow hoped. Uh, the Roman uh, philosopher and, and statesman Seneca said, How foolish is it for a man to make plans for his life while not even tomorrow is in his control. And later he said, No man has such rich friends that he can promise himself tomorrow. We just don't have any control over it. So isn't it kind of funny that we make plans for the future, like when we're going to retire, where we're going to live, and we do all of that often without praying without talking to the only one that knows what tomorrow is. So if life is uncertain, what does that mean? Does that mean that I have to live in fear all the time? Uh, does it mean that I just simply sit back and don't make any plans at all and just leave everything up to chance? Because, you know, there's that old saying that says, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. Now, what, what does it mean? It doesn't mean that we're to live in fear. It doesn't mean that we're to be paralyzed in, in action. But rather, it means that we should go through life with a dependence on God, a moment-by-moment dependence on God, uh, and that He's included in all of our plans, and we consult Him with all of our plans, and we seek to know His will. We seek to follow His principles. And then even when we think we know what He wants, we still just have to trust him for the results because our understanding might be flawed. Now, 1 Corinthians 4.19, look what Paul writing to the Corinthians says, but I will come to you shortly. He's got travel plans. He's thinking he's going to go see them. He says, if the Lord will, that's a good precaution, and, will, and I will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. He says, I'm going to come see you if the Lord will. He was always allowing for that he had ministry plans and he wanted to see people, he wanted to encourage people, but he always knew that his plans were subject to change and that was the issue. Well, there's a development of a proper spiritual uh, instinct. Uh, the great second, Christian, uh, second century Christian author, Menicus Felix, wrote, God granted, it comes instinctively to the ordinary man to speak like that. In other words, it should be a second nature to us when we're making plans to say, if the Lord will. If the Lord will. By the way, Socrates certainly was no, no Christian, but he told a story uh, uh, about a... Com there, or, well, Plato tells a story about Socrates and, and uh, uh, one of his uh, students. He says, uh, he, Socrates asked him something. He says, I, I will do that if you wish, Socrates. And Socrates answers, that's not the way to talk. How ought you to speak? You ought to say, if God so wishes. Now, obviously, if you know anything about Socrates and Plato, they didn't know God. Uh, but it, it is an interesting comment from a non-Christian that we ought to be making plans with the, the divine in our mind. So what are we to do? Well, we're to commit our future and our direction to God. I, we're not to be terrorized into fear and paralyzed in action, but we're to commit every plan to the Lord. And always remember these plans might not be within God's purpose and we need to be willing to change. Um, Kurt Richardson wrote, Life is lived but only if God wills, just as assuredly as deeds are done, but only if God wills. We only live if God wills and we can only do things if God wills. Now, I want to just show you uh, 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 one historical example of someone who I think got this. And, and again, this, this is Lincoln. I, I want to show you a couple of things. And so, uh, in September 2nd, 1862, writing in, in a writing called The Meditation on the Divine Will, Lincoln said this, The will of God prevails. In great contest, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Now think about that. This is in the midst of the Civil War. <laughs> and there's the South and the North, and you see the conflict, uh, or actually Civil War is up and coming. 
He says, both may be, but one must be wrong. In other words, two people can't want two different things and both claim that they're the will of God because God's will never contradicts itself. He understood that. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. So he understood that there was a will and that if, if two people believe that each two different things were in the will of God, only one of them could be right, but he doesn't assert that he's always on the right side. In his second inaugural address, but which if you ever go to Washington, D.C. and you walk inside the Lincoln Memorial, uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address is on the right wall or to the right of, of Mr. Lincoln. And it's worth taking the time to read the whole thing. And it's uh, fascinating how much theological content is in that address. I'm just going to pull a small part of that. It says, uh, talking about the reasons for the Civil War, because in his second inaugural address, that's what they're in the midst of. Uh, he talks about the North and the South, and he says, Both read the same Bible, pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be not judged. So basically what he's saying is, it doesn't seem plausible that God would condone slavery. But he says, but let's not judge the other side. Now that's a pretty humble comment. And then he goes on. The prayers of both, talking about those who favored slavery and those who are against it, could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully, because they're still in the middle of the war, right? The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If you didn't know that, he was just quoting from the Bible. And he says, the Almighty's got his own purpose. He says, if we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses that in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both the North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him? Basically, he says, you know, God per permitted slavery, but maybe he now means that it's time for it to come to end, and that's why he's allowed this war, and we don't know why it has to be resolved in war. And quite frankly, if you know anything about history, if they had listened to John Adams, who was, the, as far as I know, the only president who went back to being a congressman after he was president, and he was one of the longest speakers in Congress. And he, in fact, is a once... Uh, had a Supreme Court judge die while they were listening to him because he talked for nine hours nonstop. Uh, but he, he was passionate against the idea of slavery. And if they dealt with it back then, Lincoln wouldn't have had this conflict. But he says, now we're in the midst of the Civil War and, and that God's maybe given this to both the North and the South. But he says, but no matter what happens, we can't, slay the, we can't assassinate the character of God. He's still God. He still has all of his attributes, no matter what happens. That's pretty significant. And then he says this. Finally do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue. So he says, hey, we pray that it's over soon. But if God wills it continue. Until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. In other words, all the riches have been built up through 250 years of slavery. And until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As it was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said that the judgments of the Lord and true and righteous altogether. So God's got a will. We don't understand how long it's going to last. We don't understand why certain things happen. And it may be that a lot of loss has to occur, but it doesn't make a difference. The Lord is still true and righteous altogether. I think that's a pretty good theological understanding of God's will. Uh, and then he's, uh, here, here's another thing. A, a woman by the name uh, of Eliza Gurney wrote to Lincoln to encourage him. And uh, it's, you know, if anybody ever needed encouragement, it was certainly Lincoln. And uh, he responded to her. He says, I am glad of this interview, glad to know I have your sympathy and prayers. We are indeed going through a great trial, a fiery trial. In the very responsible position in which I happen to be placed, being a humble instrument in the hands of our Heavenly Father, as I am and as we all are, to work out His great purposes, His will, 
I have desired that all my works and acts may be according to his will, and that it might be so, I have sought his aid. So he says, I pray, I pray that I'm in God's will. But listen to this. This is a very humble attitude. But if after endeavoring to do my best in the light which he affords me, I find my efforts fail, I must believe that for some purpose unknown to me, he wills it otherwise. If I had my way, this war would never have been commenced. If I had been allowed my way, this war would have been ended before this. But we find it still continues, and we must believe that he permits it for some wise purpose of his own, mysterious and unknown to us. And though with our limited understanding we not, may not be able to comprehend it, yet we cannot but believe that he who made the world still governs it. This is uh, quite the theologian. So, so what do we, we learn from Abraham Lincoln about the will of God? There is a will. God is sovereign. He's still on his throne. He accomplishes all of his purposes. He's the only one that knows what the circumstances are. And what we have to do is pray to be on the side of God's will, make every effort to be on the side of God's will, but then still admit that we might not understand God's will perfectly. Do, do any of you understand God's will perfectly? I, I sure don't. Uh, God's taken me on a lot of detours, and now looking back, I see the purposes in those detours. I see why he allowed me to take detours that were not the direction I had chosen, but they were the direction that I needed to go. And that's the attitude that James wants his readers to have. Stop arrogantly making plans without God. Consult Him for everything. Follow what you believe to be God's will, but be humble and be willing to change, be willing to admit that you might be wrong. Don't get involved in this sin of arrogant boasting. Uh, anyone who doesn't remember to consult God, anyone that makes decisions without God in the frame, is being arrogant. Uh, the, the, this word, by the way, for arrogance was originally, the, the, it's a word that means that uh, it's like a wandering quack who offered cures which weren't cures. You've all, always heard the old thing about snake oil salesmen, right? And they pull up their cart and they're trying to sell you snake oil, which, by the way, there's still a, uh, a place where they do that. I remember in Taiwan, you'd go to the night market and, and uh, they would put a cobra on the ground and they'd have a little mongoose fighting it. And after a while, they'd pick the cobra up and they'd wrap a wire around its neck and they'd hang it up and they would slit his body from uh, the stem to stern, so to speak, and they would drain its blood into a cup and then they'd hook their finger like that and go down the middle of the snake until they could find his gallbladder and then they would squeeze that out into the cup and then they would offer it for sale and they would advertise that uh, it would, it would make you more virile man. It would put hair on your chest, which if you've ever looked at a Chinese man's chest, I, I don't think it worked for many of them. Uh, but, you know, it was going to make you more virile. It going to put hair on your chest. You're, you're going to be stronger. And some guy would offer up about the equivalent, uh, when I was there, it was equivalent of about $5 to drink a glass full of snake's blood. And it had a little coconut milk in it, too, which, as much as I don't like coconut, that may have been the worst part of what was in the, in the, the, the glass. But they would drink that. Uh, and yet, what's it really going to do for him? I don't think anything. Except I did see one guy that drew, some of it came down onto his white T-shirt, and I, you know, they were saying it was going to make him more attractive to women, but I looked at the girls that were standing around at the moment, and they didn't seem to be attracted to this guy who just drank the glass. So once again, there's something where they're selling a benefit that it just didn't live up to. Uh, but the fact is, the, the future... Our future is not in our hands. Yes, we can make choices, and our choices may determine some things along the way, but ultimately it's, it's God who determines and knows our future. By the way, I don't know if you know about this. It's, it's kind of ironic that we think the, we know uh, the future at all. So if I go stand out here on the road, I can see where I came from this morning down there to the, the bridge uh, where 161 and Gateway Drive meet. And we came from that direction. And I can look a little way up the hill, but maybe, maybe 100 feet, because over the hill I can't see anything. Uh, but the reality is, if, if you were to land a helicopter out in the parking lot, and I were to get in that helicopter, and we were to go up 150 or 200 feet, I could suddenly see a whole lot more. I could see what was going on down on, on, on Walnut Creek, and I could see you know, where 114 intersects with... Uh, uh, the tollway, and I could probably see further up to the MacArthur Street exit. And then if you go up and you, you fly over this in a plane at 30,000 feet, 
you can see a huge part of the state all at once, and you can see all those little squares of farmland that you see from the sky, and you see all the, the different bodies of water that are around the area. And the higher you go, the greater perspective you have. Well, in the book of Revelation, there's an angel that comes down and says, there shall be time no more, because time is a creation of God. God is not bound by time. We are. It's like standing out here in the street, and I can see my past history, and I can guess at what might happen the rest of today based on my schedule, though I have no guarantee of it. But the reality is, I have no sense of it, and yet Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, because God has an eternal perspective. He can see all the way back, which is why when I sinned, he could see my sins on the cross at Calvary being covered by the blood of Christ. And it also means that when Jesus died... He already knew all the sins I'm going yet to commit. And they were covered at the same time. And the reality is there is nothing that surprises God because He's above all time. He knows the end from the beginning. He gets it all at the same time. So how arrogant is it for us to make plans as though we know what's going to happen? No, we need to talk to the only one who hovers above time. The only one who sees the end from the beginning. And James' readers had a problem with this for two reasons. One is many of them were spiritually immature. I think the more spiritually mature you become, the more humble you should be and the more you realize that you've got to depend on God. And then the second thing is they, we're all creatures bound by time and God's not bound by time. So we're all limited in that we are bound to live in the presence, but only God knows the future. So there, by the way, I want to be careful that we don't say that all boasting is wrong. No, there's a right boasting and there's a wrong boasting. He says that if you take God out of the picture and you make plans and you boast in what you're going to do or you boast in what you think you've already accomplished, he says all such boasting is evil. In other words, boasting with God out of the frame of reference is always evil. However, James chapter 1 and verse 9, James said this, let the brother of low degree rejoice or boast in that he's exalted. Why can we boast there but not three chapters later? The difference is he's saying let the humble man boast in that he has a God that reached down and pulled him from the miry clay of sin and lifted him up so that he could know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. That's worth boasting about. Boast in God. Boast in His salvation, boast in his, his gifts, boast in His mercy, boast in His greatness. But don't boast in yourself. Don't boast in your plans. Don't boast in your accomplishments. Because according to Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's the Lord thy God that giveth thee the power to get wealth. We can't do anything without Him. So, who are we glorifying when we boast? That's, that's the question. Are we glorifying God or are we glorifying ourselves? And that will help you know the difference between right and wrong boasting. By the way, this, this theme is all throughout Scripture. Uh, 1 John 2.15, you know this, For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. By the way, I think the pride of life, the, the, the lust of the flesh is, and is really um, sexual immorality. That's why pornography is one of the most pervasive sins that hits mankind and why men get addicted to it. And a number of years ago, I was preaching in Indianapolis and I had about 400 fathers. And the speaker right before me got up and talked about the need that if you wanted to be free from pornography, you had to understand what the Bible said when it says uh, that whoso confesseth uh, uh, and forsakes their sins shall have mercy. And he talked about confessing is taking it out from being undercover and making it visible. And then forsaking it means publicly confessing it and putting it away so that, that uh, the shame of that experience behind you makes you never want to do it again. And I saw 47 fathers go forward right before I got up to preach to ask public, to, to, to cite publicly how they had given into the sin of pornography and they were asking God to free them from it. And it was a marvelous thing. And I, Talk about the Holy Spirit being present in a service. It was that day. Uh, what, a, what an awesome thing. But then there's the lust of the, the eyes. That's covetousness, materialism. This is why there's another very addictive sin in our time. It's gambling. It's why we have Gamblers Anonymous. Because people, uh, they go and, of course, uh, 
uh, and I, I marvel almost every time you walk in a gas station, somebody's buying a lottery ticket because it's this, this desire to get rich, and yet they're spending far more uh, on their tickets than they'll ever win. Mathematically, you have a better chance of being hit by lightning twice in the same place than you do of winning the lottery once. But it's that covetousness. And then there's the pride of life. And this is the one that I think has occupied more of my attention for the last 40 years than the other two, simply because every time I've had to do counseling, it always boils down to an issue of bitterness. Somebody believes that they have hurt feelings and they deserve to be treated better than they were. You ever felt like that? I think every pastor's probably dealt with that. And, and we think, I deserve better treatment than that. And so they get bitter rather than better. That's the pride of life. The reality is we don't deserve anything other than like the fire. Anything we get that's better than that is the mercy of the Almighty. And then you read Proverbs 21, 24, Proud and haughty scorner is his name, who dealeth in proud wrath. So pride and anger, by the way, always travel together. You'll never find a proud man who's not also an angry man and vice versa. And then Paul and Romans list a, a series of qualities of those who do not acknowledge God as their creator and redeemer. He says they're backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. It's interesting, pride corrupts all your morals. And then Paul told Timothy that in the last days, it says, for men shall be lovers of themselves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. And if anything, as Dr. Holmes said a while ago, we're living in a day where men are becoming more and more proud. People are more and more demanding their rights rather than trying to fulfill their responsibilities. And it's becoming more prevalent just as Paul told Timothy. So life is short and uncertain. He says it's like a vapor. You remember, you, you know what happens when you go outside and it's 40, 42 degrees and you open your mouth and you go, ah, and there's that little vapor that appears and it's gone just as quick as it went out your mouth. It just disappears. Hey, that's our life. Our life's that short. It's that uncertain. You can't see where it goes. It disappears. And the sad fact is for many of us, nobody will know who we are 100 years from now. Unless we got something right, unless we left a legacy behind, unless there's those that remember us and we contributed in some memorable way. When we appear on the earth like a smoky vapor, as the Lexham English Bible says. Uh, man's plans are tentative because our future is not our own. And so James says, what is your life? It's just a vapor that's going to disappear. It's uncertain and short. So I want to show you one more example before we close of a guy who was a businessman, and he no doubt made plans. He made many plans. He accomplished great things. And if you've never read the biography of this man's life, it's worth a read because before his life was over, he, he made the main business of his life not inventing equipment and earth-moving machines, but in leading men to Christ. And at the end of his life people found out that he'd given over 90% of all of his income to the Lord. That's pretty amazing. You know, some of us struggle to put 10% in the offering plate. And this man contributed 90%. But I, I just want you to look, and I'm, I'm not back there to run the sound booth, so hopefully this will work. Um, but this guy made plans, but he did it with the Lord in his frame of reference. When MacArthur needed an airfield on an island in the South Pacific, he called on the man who lays here. When Eisenhower needed a bridge to cross the Rhine into Germany, he called on the man who lays here. When the country needed an interstate highway system to move millions, when a young evangelist needed help to move men, he called on the man who lays here. His name was R.G. Letourneau. With a sixth grade education, he took a correspondence course, taught himself electrical and mechanical engineering, started a small business moving dirt. At that time, of course, roads were built by crews of men, dozens upon dozens of men using shovels and pickaxes and dynamite, 
we're building roads. He thought, well, surely I can develop a machine where one machine can do what a thousand men can do in a given day. Then the war began. Uh, 70% of all the earth moving equipment used in World War II were Letourneau machines. It was called the Engineer's War and three quarters of the earth moved was moved by a Letourneau machine. Almost all the airports built throughout the South Pacific that were so critical to the Allied success were a result of Letourneau's machinery. Then in 1946, R.G., already a multimillionaire, wanted to build a factory in East Texas near Lone Star Steel but he needed skilled manpower to run it. His factories across the street, he found this great campus here and thought, why not develop a school to train these men how to use their hands to build earth moving equipment. Letourneau Technical Institute of Texas was born and the earth movers just kept getting bigger. Almost every machine that he built was the largest for its purpose. Then the next one that he built was always bigger, always bigger. And it wasn't just Earth. In the 1960s, he created the first mobile offshore oil rig for a company run by George Bush Sr. He was one of the most successful and wealthiest men in America, but his passion went way beyond making money. He could not help but share the love of God with his workers. A deeply devoted Christian with a heart for men, R.G. would hold Bible studies on his factory floors. Then, in the early 50s, he meets a young evangelist named Billy Graham. Think early 1950s, think crusade, think Billy Graham, think that. Shall we pray? Billy Graham needed a place to hold a massive crusade in London. Letourneau designed and built this huge aluminum dome. So he called uh, Mr. Letourneau and said, sorry, can't use it, I found a place. So R.G. just never took it down. In fact, he built four more, and today all five still stand in the place where the largest earth movers in the world are still being built. Cardi Letourneau built the largest earth moving piece of equipment uh, ever built right here in Longview, Texas at this plant. Across the street from one of the country's most respected engineering and aviation universities. The place where R.G. Letourneau was laid to rest in 1969 and remains today next to his wife. In his last years, he spent most of his time and money preaching, sharing his love for Christ, funding missionaries and missions around the world. Where he built an endowment of over $40 million, of which 90% he gave away during his lifetime. And thus the title R.G. Letourneau, Mover of Men and Mountains. I am equipped, I'm designed by God, of all things with dirt, with dirt. And so he took this great passion and giftedness and thought, you know what, I'm going to use this for the glory of God. When you think about it, it's a pretty phenomenal thing that life had built around dirt, but built for the glory of God. Uh, there was a man that obviously made plans, but he made them with Jesus in his frame of reference. So what are we to do with all this? Just make sure God's in every plan. I told you this was a simple sermon compared to the others, but this is it. Make sure that God's in all our plans. And in place of vain boasting, maybe we need to say not just as a matter of a mechanical rote saying, like a lot of people say in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, but we need to genuinely, sincerely say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this or that. Uh, the emphasis not on the words, but the attitude of a God consciousness that makes every decision prayerfully and pursues God's will, but is always willing to acknowledge, I might be on the wrong side of this, and if so, I'm willing to change. But all planning without God is, is an evil thing. So James, because he's a pastor and uh, he knows it's important to end every passage with a summary, does a great job of summarizing everything that he's just talked about, really, in chapter 4, about how we need to love the brethren, uh, about how we need not to judge others, about how we need not to live life pursuing the sensual pleasures of our flesh. And for that matter, the three chapters that go before it, by simply saying this, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins.
That pretty well sums up the book of James up to this point. If you know to do good and you don't do it, it's a sin. James, um, you know, one of the problems we have as pastors, they say there's no original sermons because the content is still the same and lots of people have preached it. I do think sometimes that the Word of God is... is uh, closer to being infinite than finite in terms of the number of applications it has to our lives. Uh, but the reality is, is that we spend a lot of time as pastors reminding people of things. Uh, just read First Peter sometimes. See how many times Peter says that he wants to put us in remembrance of the, the, the former things. Uh, it's just so important. So James hasn't told these Christians anything they didn't already know. They should have known it, but they need to be put in remembrance of it because they obviously weren't putting it into practice. When he says anyone then, the word therefore, is the idea is you can't plead ignorance. You, you know what's right. Since you do know what's right, if you don't do it, it's, it's clearly sin. So what are the imperatives he's gone over with us in the book so far? Well, to attain spiritual maturity, you've got to do what you know to do. You've got to stand confidently in God's Word, even in trials and temptations. You've got to ask God for wisdom. You have to compassionately serve your brethren without being prejudiced just because one comes in and he's wearing a finer garment than the other and you don't offer one preferential seating over the other. You have to speak the truth carefully with a controlled tongue because the, the tongue is a deadly evil full of poison and it's set on fire of hell. So we're not supposed to use the same tongue to bless God and curse man at the same time. And we have to submit to our all-powerful lawgiver and judge because he's the only one competent to judge anyone. He's the lawgiver and he's the judge. And then... We have to be what God wants us to be. We've got to do what God wants us to do. We need to speak as God wants us to speak. And then we need to sense what God wants us to, wants us to sense. That pretty well sums up the first four chapters of James. I'm looking forward to getting to chapter 5 on, on the next time. Now, Steve's going to come lead us in a song called Day by Day. And we're going to do two things with this song. One is I just want you, uh, as if you can, to, to stand while you uh, sing. And use this as a time to get things right with the Lord. Uh, we're going to read in a moment from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're not to do it unworthily. Bad things happen when you do that. Uh, use this as a time to think about what James has just said. If you know to good, to do good and you do it not, it's a sin. What is that God asked you to do that you haven't done? And get things right now. Would you?